the best way to drive change is not to force it. Because as soon as you start saying, you know what, I attended this LinkedIn live session, and I learned we should always tell a story with our data, people are going to go blah, and not want to hear it. Whereas if you just incorporate some of that into the next time you do something, as soon as you get the feedback of, hey, that was really effective from somebody Mm -hmm. who was there, that becomes this thing that you can then build on over time. People mostly aren't naturally good at this, right? I definitely don't naturally get up in front of people talk sort of person. It's practice and it's being really passionate about what you're talking about, right? If you are not interested in your data, nobody else is going to be interested in your data. There is no way to fake that. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in. You're listening to Dedicated On Air, where we bring together data experts to share their journey and impart their knowledge. This is Kate Strashny, the founder of Dedicated and the host of Dedicated On Air. All right. Hello, LinkedIn and YouTube. We are live today and talking about storytelling with data with a very special guest, Cole Nussbaum or Naflik, the author of Storytelling with Data and a new book called Storytelling with Data, Let's Practice. And I'll tell you all about those books and how I actually met Cole. I actually, I'll actually start with that. So I bought Cole's book, the first one, Storytelling with Data, on January 27, 2016. I actually looked it up on Amazon before this session. And then I ended up buying another copy in February. I either loved it so much or lost it or wanted to give it to a friend. I don't remember exactly what happened almost five years ago. But I will show you this. I mean, the book is sort of beat up and it was in great shape when it got here. So don't think this is a bad Amazon review or something. It's just I used it that much. And I wanted to show everybody that this was one of the first books I read on data. Really highly recommend it. And then the recent book I just purchased and started flipping through is the Storytelling with Data, Let's Practice. And I'll tell you all about the books and Cole will talk about the books when we bring her on. But before we bring her on, I want the audience, all of you guys who are joining us right now, tell me what is your least favorite chart to work with? Just curious what comes out there. I know there are some charts that don't have a great reputation like a pie chart because they're not easily portraying categories and all that. But I'd love to hear from the audience. And while you guys are answering that, I'm going to go ahead and bring Cole Onto the stage. Hello, Cole. Welcome okay. to the show. Thank you. Exciting Thank you to be here. Great. Thank you so much for being here. So for those people that may not be familiar with you, can you just give a brief bio? Who are you? How did you get started with data? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Cole, and I always describe what I do as telling stories with data. So I founded a company called Storytelling with Data, where we spend most of our time, historically, it was going into organizations and spending time with teams, teaching and practicing both visualizing data in an effective manner, but taking it beyond just the visual and thinking about how we can communicate our data effectively in light of who our audience is and how we'll be communicating with them. And in particular, thinking about how we can use aspects of story when it comes to how we get our message across. So we do that mainly through workshops. Historically, we're all in person, but today are entirely virtual, which has been an unexpectedly fun, I'll say, transition. And then we have our website and the community, which we'll talk more about in the books and the podcast, where we're just trying to teach people what we've learned over the years and what we're learning when it comes to communicating effectively with data, how to make graphs that make sense and weave those into compelling stories. Absolutely. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to hearing how you've kind of had to adjust from the live environment to the virtual environment. But before we get to that, we've got a lot of comments here about charts. I'll start with Randy here is working his way through the book now. He's loving it so far. Thank you for joining us, Randy. Got Scott Taylor here. Uh, Supriya saying the book is amazing. Yeah, everyone loves your book, Cole, by the way. Hey. I'm sure you know that. I had fun with it. And so for me, it's just a neat way to get the words out there, right? Because, you know, what if I think back 10 years, it was just me in a room of maybe 20 or 30 people. The team has grown over time. But even then, there's only, there's only so many people we can talk to directly. And so the books have been a fantastic way of just getting more information into more people's hands. Because I really think that communicating effectively with data is a skill that we can all learn. It's something we can all improve, right? I'm still improving. There are no experts in this space. And so being able to help with that and provide examples and concrete 
things that people can do or that they can try when things feel off has been one of our goals from the get-go. Yeah, absolutely. And your your passion definitely comes through because you've been doing this for years and you're still so excited about it. Every time I talk to you, you're like, yeah, data. So definitely it's fun, right? People don't think of data always as being fun, but we have a lot of fun with it. So we've got some answers of least favorite charts. So we've got pie chart, pie, dual axis, waterfall. Let's see. I think pie is gonna win that pie. I saw a tree map in there somewhere. Oh yeah, bar chart. I'm still scrolling. Bar chart. Yeah. Hate the bar chart. Yeah, tree maps. I see that. Yep, there are a lot, a lot of different charts coming through. So, oh, and Gary says he's got both of your books. Both were worth the price. Absolutely. I mean, the price is what, I mean, I don't know. It's like a price of a normal book. Well, and, and on Amazon, and if you watch too, it gets really cheap sometimes. I think list price for each is like uh, in the States, at least $39.95. But then on Amazon, it's usually around $20, I think, mm. a piece. Yeah. And sometimes Amazon has these discounts where everyone's going to look at the book. I remember when I published my own books, I'm like, why is it so cheap now? And then I messaged Amazon. They're like, oh, we're eating the cost of lowering the price for you. Uh, So they play with that as well. Okay. Yeah. So we've got donuts. So a lot of pies, donuts, tree maps. What are your thoughts, Cole? What's your least favorite chart? My least favorite chart, and maybe I'll cheat a little bit, is the one that's difficult, right? It's the one that doesn't get the intended message across to the audience, or it's the one that maybe looks kind of cool, but actually doesn't do its job. Because I'm of the viewpoint, and and I've softened here over the years. Uh, If I look back historically, I've given talks called like death to pie charts and and things (laughs) of that sort. They're more on my least favorite probably list. But no chart, no graph is inherently good or bad. And pretty much every graph has a perfect use case. The challenge is just that if we venture too far from that perfect use case, things can get really tricky really quickly. Just as a couple cases in point. So we do a monthly challenge each month in the Storytelling with Data community. And typically, we'll ask people to focus on a different type of graph. So make an annotated line graph or make your best bar chart. Last month, we surprised people a bit and said, make a perfect pie. We had 72 people create visuals that incorporated pie graphs in some cases. And we got everything from you know your basic Excel pie of sales by region to the one that got the most data points, which is how we measure sort of fondness or effectiveness, uh, was a flamingo made entirely out of pie charts, uh, which Whoa. is on the artistic side of things, right? And, and everything in between. And so it, it's just an interesting collection now of being able to look and see how we can and where we can use a visual that maybe shouldn't be the first one that we reach for, but does have a proper use case when when we're thoughtful about how and when and to whom we communicate our data in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Well, you said every chart or graph might have a potential use case. And I have a question. So yes. exploding 3D pie chart. <laughs> Um, okay. Where do we use that? <laughs> this is a this is a good one, Kate. I like this twist. So there are some things that we can do to our graphs that are actually bad and yes. unadvisable. And exploding 3D by 3D, I mean like you know that third dimension that doesn't actually plot any data. These are not good things to do because these actually distort our data. And for anyone who's looking for uh, more scientific evidence, I guess, versus the anecdotal, we know it's bad, right? When you look at it, it maybe looks kind of cool and attention grabbing, but does a poor job of reflecting the information. And actually, Robert Kosara and Drew Scow did a few studies using pie charts several years ago now, and we can share the links with folks, or maybe somebody who's on can dig that up. Robert has a good summary blog on his blog, which is tour of the pie chart studies, or it's titled something like that. But where they they looked at pie charts in detail, and they actually disproved one thing that was prior to that thought to be commonly held knowledge of how people read pies, which was based on angle or arc length area, right? There was disagreement into how people measured things. And it turns out it's it's probably a combination of these things, but that it's not solely area, which was one of the things that people had uh, thought going in. Uh, another finding, though, from the study, they did all sorts of things of like smashing pies and stretching pies and 
3D and exploding them and doing these things. And in all cases, what they found was that these embellishments made the data harder for people to estimate, harder for people to make comparisons. It just got in the way of the data. And so I think sometimes we do these things because it feels like it spices things up, right? Or makes things interesting. My view is it's not the graph that should make things interesting. It should be how we communicate it, right? It should be the fact that we've thought about our audience and what they care about. And now we've woven our data into that. Mm-hmm. And because I think if we can take the time to do that, we can get our audience's attention and motivate them to act without twisting around our data in funny or bad ways. Or grabbing ways. Yeah, absolutely agree. Every chart could be good or bad, depending on how you portray it, how you make it look. So Cole, storytelling with data. Why do we need it? Let's start with that. Why is it important? Why can't we just tell stories without data? Well, so both sides of this are important, right? Because when I think of telling stories with data, part of it's the data and part of it's the story. And so I think when we think about the data side of things, there's increasing amounts of data every day, right? We're surrounded by more and more and more data. And increasingly, people who are in jobs or roles that have not historically been asked to really do much with data are being asked to do so. So part of it is getting people comfortable with data and thinking about how can I use data to support my message or paint a more robust picture for my audience, right? Or get them to pay attention or to act. And then the story side comes in because I think for people, oftentimes where they come up from a quantitative background, like the data part is comfortable, that's the part they sort of live and breathe. Sometimes we forget how important it is to be able to then communicate that data effectively, right? Because we spend all our time in the data and often, and I'll speak from personal experience, often we're introverts, right? My comfort place is behind my computer in a room by myself, playing with my data, And at the end of that, there can be, it's easy to just sort of say, all right, folks, here you go. Take this, right? Here's all my hard work. And and it makes total sense to you because you've spent all this time with the data and you have all this tacit knowledge now in your head. But it turns out there are actually a ton of things that we can do to help make all that tacit stuff in our head explicit and help our data and the graphs we make with it and the stories we tell with it make sense to our audience. And thinking in terms of story is one way to do that, right? Which is that we don't just want to give our audience data. So audiences are faced with a ton of data. And actually, our job, if we're working with data, is to bring more value to that and to bring more value to the organization by virtue of turning that data into information that people can use to understand something new and to do something with. Right? If we can't, I'm a big advocate of it. If we can't think of what our audience should do differently, maybe we don't need to communicate the data in the first place. Right? There'll be caveats to that. It's not always the case, but we look into a lot of data that doesn't isn't necessarily going to drive action. In mm. those cases, we should ask ourselves whether we need to communicate that data or if we should save it for when we have something that we need our audience to do. Right? It's a discussion they should have, a decision that should be made, pointers that we should be doing things the same when we thought we should change them or vice versa. And it's by combining, for me, these two pieces that we put ourselves in a really strong position. Because if we're informed by the data, we understand the data, we're asking smart questions of it, we're collecting good data, we're being robust in the way that we look at it, investigating alternative hypotheses, having colleagues play devil's advocate so that we are buttoned up, then we can use what we learn from that to help people understand and act in different ways. And that's where I think the story piece comes in of thinking of it as a journey that we can take our audience on and Mm -hmm. where they step into that journey is highly dependent on the context, right? Sometimes they're with us from the get-go. They help us ask the questions and design things and they're giving context the whole way along. Other Mm -hmm. times it might be more, they join us at the end, right? Where we've gone through the analytical journey and now we're catching them up to speed. And there's a lot of different scenarios. There's not a one size fits all sort of solution here, which I think is one thing that people sometimes find frustrating because there's a desire for there to be clear rules that always hold true and Mm -hmm. a single approach that's always going to work. 
and this is actually, though it frustrates some people, this is why I think this space is so much fun. It's because mm-hmm. I think of it like a puzzle, right? Where every time the pieces are a little different, you've got your audience, who are they? What are the personalities you're dealing with? Or what can you assume about them? You've got how you're presenting to them. Are you physically in a room with them? Are you, you know, is there a screen between you? You've been flattened to two dimensions or yeah. are you sending something off that's going to be consumed totally on its own, right? What tools do you have? What experts do you have? What data do you have? What data do you wish you had? And all of these things that need to fit together in a way that helps you achieve your goal, right? And so part of the important thing is when we're looking at data, when we're communicating it, knowing what it is we want to get out of it and then trying to align things for success, given all of those constraints and the specifics of the scenario. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I mean, I think most people would agree storytelling is important, right? I think people understand that, but they still struggle with actually executing. And you see that by the popularity of your book and the popularity of this talk, right? Because people want to know, how do I actually tell stories with data? But do you have any best practices and tips that you can share on how do people get started? They have a data set and let's say they know their audience. What is the next step? How do they actually tell that story? Yeah, and this is a great question because I think oftentimes people say, yeah, this makes sense. But then they look at their own work and there's a gap between where things are at and like going through a full-blown story presentation, right? And so don't think that that's the, the, that the end state has to happen immediately. This is something you work towards and that you integrate in small ways first because those small successes are going to, one, build your confidence, right? But then also build your credibility in the folks around you so that when you do want to take things a little further and get more into some of these things that may run counter-cultural to how things have been done historically at your organization or in your team, you'll get more flexibility for doing so. And so one easy, super tactical thing that you can do immediately is for every graph you communicate, these aren't the graphs that you look at behind the scenes, right? Those can be whatever you want. They can be quick and dirty. They don't need to tell a story, right? That's you analyzing the data, figuring out what's interesting. But once you're to the point where you have something that you now want to communicate to somebody else, for every graph you're going to show, write a sentence about it. And then and that sentence can be about what's the main thing I want people to see in this graph? What's the main thing I want them to know? In some cases, you'll find it's this crazy run on sentence and there are 20 things you want them to know. And then that's an indication, okay, maybe we should break this up into more pieces yeah. or highlight one or a couple of things at a time. There's another challenge when you actually can't come up with the sentence, in which case I would say, okay, don't communicate that graph. Uh, And in other cases, we'll come up with this sentence where once we say it, now someone else looking at the graph has been primed if they hear or read these words to know what to look for. So write your sentence about your graph and then put those words on the page. And I'm often an advocate if you're If you're doing your graphs in some tool and then PowerPoint or Keynote or some sort of slide where becomes the container that you use to put those in and send them out, think about how you use that title space at the top. Put your takeaway there. And there's actually have been studies that have shown, I think it was Michelle Borkin. I'm not confident in that though. Probably somebody who's watching it will know the one I'm talking about and can maybe put some info in the chat. But where, and this wasn't too long ago in the past year or two, where they did a study that showed if you titled the graph with the takeaway, people were subsequently more likely to remember the takeaway. Mm-hmm. Right? So if there's something that you want your audience to know, put it yep. in word. And then I'm an advocate of make those words stand out, right? Make them big, make them bold, put them in high priority places on the page, like the top, right? Or the title of the graph is another place to put this. We see this done in the media a lot in ways that works well. And then the second thing I would say is think about now. So now you've got your sentence about your graph or, you know, maybe you have a lot of graphs. You have a lot of sentences about or you have a sentence about each. Now think about where do you want people to look when they encounter your visual? To you, it's totally obvious because you know your data, you made the graph. So you know where you, you should pay attention and what's interesting. And I think we sometimes have the false assumption that our audience should also. And if they sit with it long enough, they, they probably could do, but they may go down a different path with it. And so if there's somewhere specific you want your audience to look, which if you're communicating something specific, there should be, do things to draw their attention there. One thing that we use often, you'll see it in examples throughout the book and throughout all of our work is just the sparing use of color. If you do everything grayscale or black and white and use color sparingly, 
you can use it in this really powerful way to signal to your audience where you want them to look. But color is not the only option. Any sort of clear contrast that signals that something is different or something is noteworthy to your audience will be a good way to do that. Because if you pair those things, right, I've figured out what I want my audience to know about the graphic, put it into words, and now I've done something to highlight their attention, hopefully that connects with those words. Now your audience can immediately hone in on the main message from your graph which could have been something that prior to doing those things, they would have just flipped past or yeah. might've looked at it and decided to focus on something else. Yeah. And then I would say the next step as we think about this path to getting towards story, because you can imagine if you have a number of graphs and analysis and you do this for all of them, you can step back and say, well, how do they fit together? And then you can start using those sentences you've written, some connector words to weave your narrative. Right? And thinking about how you want to take your audience on the journeys, their context you need to share up front, or do you want to tell them up front what the main takeaway is and then work in the context, right? And there'll be different scenarios that'll call for different things. But I think the biggest thing to think about is, and I talked about this a little bit already, but what does success look like? And how do I align my materials to help create a successful scenario? Because too often we just fall into habits and we communicate the same way we've always done because we've always done it that way without mm -hmm. thinking about and optimizing for the specifics of a given scenario. And the more important the thing is, the more time we should think about identifying those specifics and optimizing our materials and presentation, right? How we'll talk through the data or what it's going to look like when we send it off to meet those specifics. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, comment on when you were talking about writing that sentence. I've heard this reference uh, in other talks as well. I think it's a, it's a common practice to write the tweet first, write the sentence first. What are you trying sure. to say? And one thing I like is if you actually show that chart to, let's say, a colleague or maybe somebody not familiar with the data and ask them, what do they think that sentence is? And if you get eight, you ask eight different people and you get eight different answers, chances are you have to go back and kind of find that chart to actually match the story that you're telling. But all a very great points. Really appreciate that. We've um, got a question here from Brian asking, what is your favorite data visualization tool? I knew this would come up. Yeah. So let's hear your favorite data vis tool. We don't use anything fancy for the most part. My general feeling on tools is there are no tools simply also like there are no graphs that are inherently evil, no tools yeah. inherently good or evil either. Any tool can be used well and any tool can be used not so well. All of the examples in the books and most of our client work is done in Excel and mm -hmm. Excel and PowerPoint. You don't need fancy tools to do this stuff well. And we use Excel and PowerPoint primarily mainly because of their pervasiveness. I mean, anyone can pick up Excel and make a graph. You know, nobody really teaches us how to do this, which is where our stuff comes in. Uh, but when it comes to tools, my general recommendation is find a tool or a set of tools, get to know them as best you can so that they don't become limiting factors when it comes to designing your graphs well. And the best way to learn any tool is to just start using it and force yourself and beat your head against the wall and do some smart Google searches or surround yourself with colleagues who know more than you do, uh, mm -hmm. whom you can pepper with questions. But an excellent way to learn a tool as well is to recreate good graphs in other tools. Yeah. Actually, you mentioned the books earlier. Let's Practice is organized entirely, that's the blue book, is organized entirely into exercises. Uh, and each chapter, yeah, so thank you, it follows the same general structure in terms of topics as mm -hmm. the first book, but it's all exercises. And within each chapter, the exercises are formed into three different sections. There's Practice with Cole, which are exercises you're meant to work through on your own. But then mm -hmm. I also show my solution as a way of giving insight uh, into the behind the scenes process and just sharing a lot more content. I think the first book is nice and easy. Everything's very clean and cut and dry. And the second book, we get into more messy situations and corner cases and grapple with some more complicated stuff in ways that I think is useful. The second exercise section is practice on your own. So these are similar sort of canned exercises, but without prescribed solutions. So these are good for anyone who's teaching content and is looking for exercises or group projects for their students or for the person who just wants more practice or for the manager who wants to assign 
more practice for folks on their team. And then the final exercise section within each chapter is practice at work, mm-hmm. which is, all right, you've done this in general, you've done it with some canned exercises. Now let's take a project that you're facing in your day-to-day, break it into component pieces. And that's where you'll find a lot of really tactical exercises that go deeper and, and more tactical into some of the things that I've talked about already, right? forming takeaway titles. We spend a lot of time in our workshops around the big idea and coming up with this and iterating on that. And there are exercises around that and storyboarding, as well as all of the graph design and weaving it into a story sort of components. This is a long way for me to get background to my point on graphs, which is another one is just redesigning graphs that you already know what they're going to look like in a tool that you're learning. And Mm -hmm. so all of the data, all of the graphs from Let's Practice, which is like several hundred, are available for download. And those are at... I should know this off the top of my head. It's If you go on our website, the link is there, but it's, I want to say, storytellingwithdata.com slash let's practice slash downloads. If you have the book, it definitely is listed out there. The link will be in there. And we've had people that have done this. So there's a guy, Adam Rovato, he'll actually be featured this week uh, in our community for some of the work that he's done. But he recreated, uh, I think it was 20 some graphs from the first book. And I think he was doing them in R, but we've had people do uh, recreate things in a variety of tools. And actually, if you go to the download page that I talked about a moment ago, you'll find all of the Excel for everything. And then we have select exercises that we've done the solutions in many tools. So there are a handful where we've got the solution in Power BI and R and Python and Google Data Studio and Data Wrapper and Flourish. And a host oh, that's of other awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Those are the tools. I'm, I'm actually teaching a data to dashboard course and all of those okay. tools that you just mentioned, plus more. But yeah, the idea is to create the exact same thing in different tools because I started with Tableau, then kind of moved on to Power BI and Click and Excel. And I love Data Wrapper, by the way. They don't get enough. Yeah. Well, and the, the awesome. yeah, super user-friendly and the default graphs look really sharp. So, I yeah. know. You barely have to do anything to Data Wrapper. That's like, that's my favorite part. There was a question here that you sort of touched on, but I do want, do want to get clarification from Asha, she's asking which book do we start with? Storytelling with Data, Data Viz Guide, or the Let's Practice? And personally, I say start with the first one. I read the first one about five years ago. I definitely think that in-depth background of data visualization best practices yeah. was super helpful. But the second book does a great job at summarizing it. I mean, highly recommend both, but start with one and then go to two. Right? Yeah, I think that that's sound advice, Kate. The the exception would be if you really want to get hands-on soon, then maybe you'd start with the second one, the blue one. But otherwise, I would tend to agree. And particularly if you're newer in this space of starting with the first book, and that'll give... And it's, it's a fast read. And it'll give you a good overview of the thinking and some examples. And then Let's Practice, the blue book really takes that to a different level and asks you to get involved, right? Roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty. And even if you don't do that, there's a lot to get out of it through the content that's there. But I'm a big believer that practicing and getting feedback is a great way to hone skills in this space. And actually, that leads me into another resource that I definitely encourage people to check out. I think you've had it going in the banner running across the oh, bottom yeah, of the screen. The community. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the Storytelling with Data community. So as I mentioned, I'm a big believer that to get good at this stuff takes practice and getting feedback and giving feedback and talking with others who may be in similar parts of their data storytelling journey and have encountered challenges or come up with solutions that you may be able to use. And we've created the Storytelling with Data community to try to facilitate all of these things. So Mm -hmm. it's a free online community. It takes about two minutes to sign up where you can go. And I mentioned our monthly challenge. It lives there. So there are a couple ways to practice. One is through the monthly challenge. We also regularly put out exercises. There's an exercise bank, some drawn off of the exercises from Let's Practice, but they're in similar sorts of veins of, and and they're meant to, for the main part, not take a lot of time, right? I find with the monthly challenge, people go crazy sometimes, right? I mentioned that flamingo made of pie charts. I know, that's awesome. Um, You don't have to go crazy, but people (laughs) oftentimes do. So they're spending time doing this, right? They're devoting some hours on the weekend or in evenings and such. The exercises are meant to be the opposite of that. The exercises are meant to be, you know, take five or 10 minutes out of your workday and 
practice something really specific in a totally canned way, right? The data is provided, everything's there. You've got what you need for that 10 minutes. And then what you learn through that will have applications for when it comes to your day-to-day work. There's an exercise bank. And then the really cool thing is when you submit your solution, it unlocks both our team's solution, but then also the solution of everybody else who solved the exercise. So in some cases, you can see hundreds of other people's approaches, right? And so there's a lot to be gained as well, just from the comparing and contrasting how you approach something with how somebody else did. And both that and the challenge become great archives to be able to go through and just get inspiration or ideas or understand when it comes from the design aspect, what things do you like and what things do you like less? Mm -hmm. There's also in the community, a really cool discover tool where, and I'll sit sometimes and just shuffle. There's a shuffle button and it pulls all of the content that people have added. So I've added, for example, all the graphs from both of the books to my gallery. And then other people, as they're submitting responses to challenges, those get put in or each member has a gallery where you can upload things and create your own portfolio. And so all of those things become search and discoverable. So if I know what I'm looking for, I can filter and get something really specific. I'm not sure I can just click the shuffle button and discover and get inspired by things that I didn't even know that I was looking for. Which can be yeah, that's fun. awesome. I was just going to say there are also ways to get feedback and post uh, questions. And we have a premium layer to the community as well, which mainly gives more access to me and the team and straight lines there where we do monthly live events where we're presenting content and taking viewer questions. We have a growing library of video learning. And then we do weekly office hours where those who've subscribed for premium can show up to an office hour and talk with someone from the team. If you're grappling with something specific or if it's something that's more sensitive than you can post to a community of people, we can help talk through some of those things. So it's been a fun space and I love seeing the activity and yeah, people helping each other. Yeah, for that one-on-one sessions, do you also provide help with like if somebody's stuck with a Power BI thing they're trying to do? Do you do any hands-on help with that? We do some of that. We our expertise when it comes on the tool side is mainly Excel and Tableau. We'll get into a bit of that. But as people have questions, we can help find solutions for Mm -hmm. them in cases if we don't have it directly. Or a lot of times there's like sort of the brute force approach that talking through how you do something in one tool, even if you're not familiar with the other tool, can highlight some ways of attacking things there. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, monthly challenges. Not sure if you touched on it, but what's the challenge for this month? Oh, great question. So we just launched it yesterday on the 1st of September. So we're focusing on tables this month. We're getting back to basics. Tables. On the tables, which I don't personally do a lot of communicating with tables, but they totally have a good use case. And and we even in live presentations will often say, don't use a table in a live presentation, which (laughs) is mostly probably true. But there are some cases where you're sitting down with your audience and you're going through data line by line, or there are reasons to have it in this sort of tabular format. So I'll be curious to see what sort of submissions we get this month. And in any case, it'll be a great archive of tables and table design. That's cool. And it's free to participate, right? So anyone who's watching now, they can go and create tables and sign up for your community by going to that link. Okay. Question here. We welcome you there. Yeah. Yeah. You're very welcoming. So I, I assume you welcome people. So there's well, and that's really what it's meant to be, right? As a safe space. Because I feel like yeah. sometimes people get nervous about applying things at work, but when you can do it somewhere outside of work, practice, get good, and then it sneaks its way into how you do your day-to-day. Um, just looking through, we've got uh, interesting comments, questions here. Uh, John saying tables in the form of highlighted tables work relatively well. Yeah, there's all sorts of things we can do to tables, right? You can apply heat mapping or you can embed graphs in them and do things to bring visual components in. And I imagine that we'll see some of that in this month's challenge. Yeah, it's exciting because you get to see what people are thinking, what they come up with. So much fun. And part of the fun about the challenge, too, is people can go and find their own data. So it can be something that you're personally interested in. And we have a list of several hundred public data sources for anyone who's struggling to come up with something and wants to poke around in a bunch of data. Yeah, that's cool. We've got a question here from Anne asking, if you only have five data points, do you need a graph? It depends, right? It depends what those five data points are and what they show. And if there's something important about the shape of them that would be helpful for people to see. I think five data points you can think of, well, that's not a lot, right? Maybe I'll just put those in a table. 
when we put data in a table or even if just we just leave it as numbers, right? You're forcing your audience to read it and to think about it. And there's actually a ton of cognitive processing trying to happen of hold on to one number, compare it to the other numbers. As soon as we make that data visual, it takes that layer of processing off because we're able to just then see the shape with our eyes. So five data points, I would say, is oftentimes plenty to be able to put into a graph. It'll depend on what it is and what you're trying to get your audience to know or to see. And if those five data points are sales over the past five quarters, and I really only care about last quarter's sales, then no, maybe you don't need a graph. Oh, even though as I talk through that, I'm like, but that'd probably still be useful context, right? For the last quarter of sales. Context dependent, but plot the data, right? Iterate through a couple different views of it and see whether seeing it helps you see something. How many times can I use see in a single sentence? Yeah, I think sometimes it's not the size of the data, but what what story you're trying to tell, right? Exactly. So a question here from Luke, and this question came up uh, quite often, was what were the books we were talking about? First one is Storytelling with Data. It's an in-depth guide on uh, digital best practices, what charts to use, great for anyone who's actually, you know, getting started with data visualization or know data pretty well and need help visualizing it. And, you know, Cole, feel free to add, these are your books, right? I'm just talking about that. It's always great to hear them through other people's words. That was perfect. (laughs) And the second book that we were talking about was Let's Practice. It's more like a, more like a college, not even a course. It's more like a college degree in storytelling because you get all this hands-on practice and exercises that you get to practice with. So highly recommend both. Yeah, the second one's big. Uh, yeah. The, uh, I'll just say all of the resources that we've talked about today, if you go to our website, which is storytellingwithdata.com, you'll find info on all of this. So the books, the community, those downloads that I talked about, uh, also information on our workshops. We do, I'll do a quick plug. We have an upcoming public workshop where anybody can register and join. That's on September 15th. So coming up in just a couple of weeks mm-hmm. and it's virtual. Oh. Of course. What's not virtual, Cole? Is there anything? It was, it was actually meant to be in New York City. Everything was yeah. meant to be somewhere, yes. But it was not meant to be. Sorry. No, not, not this year. Oh, virtual. <laughs> um, there's a comment here from Emily. I'm not sure if it's showing for you. Sometimes I click. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she really enjoyed the book, Got It Dismay. Perfect. And a question here from LinkedIn users. Sometimes it hides the names for, I guess, security. But what career advice do you have for someone looking to focus on data viz as their primary role? This is interesting to me. And we talk with companies about this a lot as well, or teams that are trying to figure out how do we organize, how do we divide people into different roles for success? My view, and I'll be frank to say that not everybody shares this view, but that data visualization as a role my view is that, that that isn't a role in and of itself, but I see data visualization as a step in uh, an analytical process, which means any role in which we touch data can have visualization in it. And that comes in both as we're exploring data, we're analyzing it, right? we're looking at it in different ways to understand it better, and can also obviously come in in how we communicate that data to others. So I'd say for anyone who feels like they want more data visualization in their role, look for opportunities to do it in your current role. Uh, That's the easiest way to try out anything new and see if you like it. When I reflect back on my own path, when I started teaching about data visualization was when I was an analyst working at Google and was privileged to be able to start teaching people as part of my normal day job, which then eventually grew into something where I left Google and did things on my own. But I'm a big advocate of anything you can do in your current world that allow you to flex your skills and build your skills and test out to make sure that's what you want to do before you make any changes. And then if you're feeling limited, if you're feeling like, well, but there's more that I want to do there than I can do in my role, then you have to decide, are you able to supplement that in ways outside of your job? So, and then I would think of things in the community or any of these community sort of initiatives, Makeover Monday is another popular one of being able to flex your data viz skills in other spaces, right? But because this builds skill, it builds a portfolio of work for you for then if you say, okay, now I want more of this in my day job. Now you've got evidence to be able to draw on to show prospective managers or employers. So big fan of testing it out and building skills, building a portfolio 
behind the scenes, I guess, when you can before making that jump. And then thinking about, you know, when I think of the inflection points I've had in my career, it's been stepping back and thinking about what skills do I have? What skills do I want to be using? What skills do I want to develop? And then what sort of company do I want to be at? What sort of roles do they have? What, where, how might those things match up? And then yeah. do self-reflection and plan from there. Yeah, uh, I think that's great advice, especially the portfolio of work. And I wanted to ask the community site that you mentioned earlier, are people that participate in that community able to leverage that site to show off their work? You know, the work yeah, that they certainly can. So in the community, so everything is open. So anyone can browse uh, what's okay. there, which means if you, then to do any sort of interaction, so if you wanted to build your own profile and gallery or comment on someone else's or participate in a challenge, do those sort of things, then you sign up. And as I mentioned, sign up's free. It just takes a couple of minutes. But what you can do then is if you wanted to use that as what a CV, I guess, right? There spaces where you can in your member profile add information about yourself your goals and then a gallery where you can add your work and so you'd certainly be able to then share that with others oh. and there's also a fun thing there that's been a more recent addition where we've got an activity tracker where you can it's a heat map that shows what sort of activity you've done and how much and so that would be another sort of point of evidence i guess that you could show a prospective employer or manager of i'm really interested in this here's how i spend my time here's how i'm honing my skills and you'd have some thing, tangible things to be able to show for that yeah that's i think that's really cool because it's different than going to somebody and say yeah i've done so many data visualizations and then actually sending them to a site where they can see how much effort you've put into it and um, there was a question of, about the community, which um, Deepa's asking, what's the community you were talking about? So it's community.storytellingwithdata. That's the site you can go to to join, free to join. You just go in, sign up and start engaging um, and, and building your own portfolios. I think it's a great idea. I've done something similar with uh, Makeover Monday, which mm -hmm. I guess some people in the Tableau space might be familiar with, just recreating charts with the same data. But you have a flexibility of using any data to create charts, right? So there's a... Yeah, well, and it's, it's self-serve, right? Of thinking about what you want to do and how you want to develop. So there's the monthly challenge where you're going and sourcing data of interest, but there's a specific topic, right? So like tables this month, or there are the exercises where you can practice specific skills and have the data served up for you, places to get feedback and give feedback and participate in conversations. It's a great way to get a hold of me and the team. So for example, we had uh, someone started a conversation the other day asking about variable width bar charts, right? Should we use these? Should we not? And so I left some of my thoughts there, which is nice right now, because not only is it, an, it's not an email behind the scenes between me and someone, it's something that's out there that everyone can see. But then I thought, you know what? I bet lots of people in my world have opinions on this yeah. and examples to share. And so I tweeted about it. And this is like late in the day yesterday. And I tuned back in last night and there's like, 40 some responses uh, with examples and a lot of people oh, saying, no, they're awful and confusing. And then a handful of people saying, yes, here's a really awesome one. And so mm -hmm. just like we were talking about earlier, every graph has a good use case pretty much. And so I was able to then go back into the community and say, hey, check out this Twitter thread. And by the way, here's the summary of what I learned in asking my network, which is a lot of people who do a lot of thinking and practicing in the data visualization space. So it's just a way to get more access to more people who are thinking about these sorts of things too, which I think can be helpful. Yeah, that's always great. Crowdsource thinking is the best. <laughs> I, I use that all the time. There's a question here that I like from Aaron. How do people get around the fact that the visit we create as part of our work is proprietary and shouldn't be shared? And so the question is, are people just sharing practice stuff? Yeah, this is a great question. And so it's certainly something that we want to be cautious about, right? We don't want people sharing anything confidential. But there are ways around that where, and actually we can think of any of the examples that we do in the books, those all had seeds in a real example from a real company or a real based on a true story. Yeah. Yeah. Based on a true story. Exactly. But where you change the details and you change right, right, them right. enough so that the original is no longer recognizable in any ways. You could think about if it's an approach that you're wanting to test out, you could even just draw it on paper and upload that, right, without any details or with changing the details so that you're not giving away anything proprietary. Or if there are sensitive things, you can you can redact things, you can physically mm -hmm. cover things up. There are some tools that help make that a little bit easier. 
or change the scenario. We were simply describe it and have some back and forth in words. So, and then the office hours that I mentioned are another way where you might be able to share more in a one-on-one basis when it's just me or someone from the team uh, mm-hmm. to be able to get some of that feedback. So thinking about how you can change the specifics to still get the feedback that you need, I think is how most people are tackling that. Yeah, yeah I think don't, don't share anything confidential. Yeah. Yeah. So don't share anything confidential. And I love the office hours because sometimes you really need somebody to just look at this and tell me how to do it or have a, a conversation. Um, oh, and I can oh, see someone from the teams on as LinkedIn user because some, uh, we've got a response there that actually points you, and this is a good reminder, to a blog that we posted recently on tips for anonymizing data. So you'll see that oh, okay. link in the chat there. We had a comment here. It goes so fast that I actually tend to lose them. But there was a question here from Matt. So when we talk about storytelling with data, people tend to gravitate towards the visualization aspect. The actual storytelling aspect is also critically important. How do we change the narrative a bit to increase the focus on actual storytelling? I'll admit it. I'm also, when people talk about data storytelling, I'm like, okay, so you select the right chart, you remove the clutter. But what do we mean when we actually focus on storytelling? Yeah, this is a great question. And I think this is a common thing that people grapple with, right? Of the, because even when we talked about it earlier, right? It's the basics, like, all right, write the words down, use color. But there's this whole other dimension that we get when we're presenting data live, whether it's in a room with people or with the screen, the way we're doing now, the way most things are today, which is you, right? Then the role that the presenter or the person who's talking through the information plays in the process of storytelling. And so any investment that you can do in yourself, because I think honestly, the way to drive change here is through example and doing good work that other people want to emulate and highlight as being effective. And I guess because I started this off saying, you know, focus on you and the presentation and these pieces of things, which practice is the best way to do that. But there are also things that we can do, I think, in the static version of the thing that gets sent around that gets more into story. And that's coming back to thinking about this journey that we want to take people on and figuring out where do you start? right? Do you start with the written thing or do you start with yourself? And so then there's no right answer there. And I think one way I would encourage folks, if you're feeling like there's resistance, right, that I want to do this, but I'm not sure how, or I'm not sure people are going to be open to it. Look for low risk spaces and low hanging fruit first, right? Where might you do more storytelling in ways that people are going to be accepting to it? Whether it's something you're doing static that you're sending off that's getting sent around, and in which case maybe it's like you're rearranging things so that there's a narrative flow, you're making that clear, or in how you're presenting things. And for that, and I think people just in the state of things today have more patience and are more flexible when it comes to others doing things differently, right? Because we're all doing things differently than we were if we rewind a few months. And so if you started off your next Zoom meeting where you're going to walk through some data and said, hey, folks, today, I actually want to do something a little different. You can like change your space physically too, right? Maybe I'm sitting down, I'm going to stand up because that gives me a different perspective. It allows me to use my hands more and I'm going to walk you through a story. And now yeah. you'll have some questions, but we'll get into all of that. Let me first take you on the path and you can, you can try things out and see what works and what doesn't, right? but do it in lower risk spaces first. This is not where you like walk into the next board meeting and you're like, I'm all right, gonna folks, I'm going to tell you a story. Like think of, think of small ways that you could start doing some of that and like yeah. pushing yourself into spaces that feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. because that's how we learn and that's how we grow. And that's how we figure out Hey, did, was that an utter failure? And was it an utter failure because I had I, I didn't I didn't do this thing right, or I didn't try that thing, or is it just that was too much to try or not working for the scenario? And every bit of input you can get to figure out how can you try out some of this stuff and get feedback, which is yeah my long rambling approach for try stuff be strategic about where and how and the best way to drive change is not to force it because as soon as you start saying you know what i attended this linkedin live session and i learned we should always tell a story with our data people are going to go blah and not want to hear it whereas if you just 
incorporate some of that into the next time you do something. As soon yeah. as you get the feedback of, hey, that was really effective from somebody mm-hmm. who was there, that becomes this thing that you can then build on over mm-hmm. time. People mostly aren't naturally good at this, right? I definitely not a naturally get up in front of people talk sort of person. Uh, it's practice and it's being really passionate about what you're talking about, right? If you are not interested in your data, nobody else is going to be interested in your data. There is no way to fake that. So finding how you can get interested in it and then helping make connections for your audience about how they can get interested in it. That's a recipe for fantastic things. Yeah, absolutely. We got Scott Taylor here, who's the data whisperer. He never actually whispers. I've had him on my show before. He yells about data (laughs) management. Get up, move around and own the space. It could get awkward to own the space when you have a screen, but I think it's something that definitely people need to explore. I've actually jumped in front of a camera at one point to, um, I jumped into the shot like, hey, now I'm going to tell you, I used to do these dedicated um, challenges it was like yeah. blog writing on data vision. Like you were off camera and you jumped. I was on off camera. camera and I jumped into view and then I went into my little speech. And people loved yeah. it because it was so different. It was, it felt awkward. I mean, my husband laughed at me. It was, <laughs> it was funny, but definitely got attention because people are like, but yeah. there's nothing there. And then you jump in there. So yeah, that was well, it just really, it will, anything that's new or different is, it, it does feel awkward at yeah. first, but you get used to it. And then, or you change things up, right? To try to have it not feel fake or disingenuous, but to try things that will give you the right sort of energy and allow you to project the right sort of energy to bring your audience along with you. Really, when you are engaged and excited about something, that sort of attitude is contagious and you can help bring your audience along with you in cases where a different presenter may have lost them, right? Which is, I find a fascinating thing. Yeah, absolutely. And staying on the same topic, we've got uh, two people that have asked a similar question on dynamic storytelling. And the question is, what about dynamic storytelling dashboards? Is that even possible to do storytelling with dynamic dashboards? So this is another one of those places where there are reasonable people out there who will disagree. My view, and I tend to draw a distinction between exploratory analysis and explanatory analysis, where the exploration of data is just what it sounds like, right? We're digging through data, we're learning things about it, and we, we may have certain metrics we're looking at again and again. And then there's the explanation of we've, we've looked at the data, we found something interesting, and now there's something we want to say about that data to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So for me, dashboards, and I'll throw any sort of regular reporting into this bucket as well, For me, those are more on the exploratory side and they help make the process of exploring our data more efficient, where if I've got a dashboard and I'm confident that I'm looking at the right metrics in that dashboard, I can easily go through and say, where are things in line with my expectations? Where are they not in line with my expectations? Where is something interesting going on here? Yeah. Then my view is that the best course of action is usually to take that data out of the dashboard and do a lot of things that we teach when it comes to, you know, putting the words around it, highlighting attention where you want it, weaving it into the story. Now, it doesn't mean you don't use your dashboarding tool still to do this. And actually, Mike on the team has a great webinar that's going from dashboard to story. He stays in Tableau the whole time. He uses Tableau to eventually tell the story, but Mm -hmm. he uses it almost more like you would use PowerPoint slides, right? Where it's the framing or the shell you've taken it out of the dashboard because the problem is when there's something interesting happening, you know, way down on the dashboard or wherever it is, it's hard to draw attention to it. And you actually don't usually want to draw attention to it that way in the dashboard because the dashboard's not meant for that purpose. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, take it out of the dashboard to tell the story. Yeah. Because every time your audience, let's say 10 different people use the dashboard and they use different dynamic filters and drill downs, they get a different story. So you lose control of the messaging. It's great for exploring the data, like you mentioned, but I completely agree. We've got Taylor's law of energy. No one can be more excited about your topic than you. So if you're low energy, then your audience will be as well. Yes, absolutely. So if we're going to just sit here, fall asleep and drone on, our LinkedIn Live audience and YouTube is going to leave us as well. (laughs) Liliana is asking, where do we find that webinar? Is that... Oh, so... Is that a webinar? Yeah, the webinar behind the scenes uh, for clients, but the information on all of our stuff you'll find on the website at storytellingwithdata.com. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if the link here is the one that you would like to share, 
we threw oh hey look at that so thomas found a conversation on dashboards in the community i love it okay right so let's see Oh, yeah, it's God says the only exception is your mom. So your mom might be <laughs> excited about everything he does. That's great, Scott. Thank you. One last thing before we wrap up, and you know, people have maybe one more question and we can get to that. But the charts and graphs that we're currently seeing on the news, you know, on TV, on social media, can we trust those charts and graphs? What what, what are your opinions on that? So, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> this is a sticky question to get into. It's just a few minutes left, Kate. I think uh, I, I'll point people to another resource related to this, okay. which is Alberto Cairo's latest oh, yeah. book is called How Charts Lie. And uses a lot of examples, many from the media, and just talks about the things, that, the traps, I guess, that people fall into. And from a consumer standpoint, the things to be aware of when you're taking in information. One of his biggest tips, though, and he actually, he talked about this. We did a podcast right around the time that the book came out. So it's probably about a year ago now that you can find on our website. But he is an advocate of when you encounter something, and especially on social media, right? Because things just spread so quickly there. If you see a graph and you're about to forward the graph, just pause. And before you forward it, make sure there's a source. Maybe take a minute and go to the source, right? Just a couple minutes of fact checking and like sitting with this idea of, does this make sense before just blasting it forward that we could control or not control is the wrong word, but we could eliminate a lot of the stuff that happens as a result of people just sharing bad information. And a lot of times the bad information isn't malicious. It's just someone not realizing that they've done something that's not quite right. And sometimes it is malicious. And I've seen plenty of examples of that as well. But I think as a consumer of data and especially in the media and even beyond that, especially on social media, right? We should all recognize that we are being served up things because of the interests that we've put forth. So the things that we see that we encounter are being curated to push us further in a certain direction. And I'll sort of stop there and got, not get more into my thinking on those things. But so just be aware of that and take a beat or several beats before just blindly forwarding things. And, and we're more likely to do that, by the way, when the thing that we're forwarding reinforces views that we already hold, because then mm -hmm. it's easy for us to see them as truth. And that's often not the case. So be, be a conscious consumer and be thoughtful about when and how you spread information, especially over social media. Mm -hmm. I tend to become a public hermit when it comes to this sort of stuff. Where just I'm not posting anything on COVID. I'm not posting anything on the election yeah. because the amount of research I feel like I would need to do to feel okay with that would be all time consuming. So for us, for me, storytelling with data is a safe space to not have to deal yes. with any of that stuff, right? I go to my office and I put on my shell and I pretend the rest of the world doesn't exist for yes. hours or something I, I very much agree with you on that. Even uh, I was talking to my niece and she was talking about, you know, posting something on COVID. And I'm like, no, th this is one thing I stay away from because there's so much data out there. Yes. And I think everyone has decided that their data visualization or the I can't even say that word, epidemiologist expert. Uh, um, yes. And they're just, yeah, yeah I, I forget how to say that. But yeah, and then they're just putting out data visualizations out there that might make other people either really scared or feel at yeah. ease and none of which are necessarily accurate. But yes, yeah, so yep. let's move on from the topic. <laughs> we have a comment here from Irina. She said, great talk. She just got your second book. Yay. Looking okay. forward to your thoughts, Irina. I, I, I love to share books that I've actually read and enjoyed and then have other people read them and actually tell me they've enjoyed it. That's, um, yes. I get a sense of joy from that. Yeah, we have a lot of comments. I don't think we're going to get through more uh, questions, but Cole, I... Cole, for any other questions that folks have that we've not answered here, welcome you to join the community and post those there. And that's been yeah, scrolling around the bottom of your screen. Yeah, let's go to where can people go where, you know, to continue the conversation with you. So that community, I guess, yeah. is the best place, right? Community is the best place. Uh, there's also a ton of information on our website. So storytellingwithdata.com. I'm active on Twitter. I'm at storywithdata. But yeah, when it comes to engaging in conversations and getting feedback and practicing, that's where I'd highly recommend signing up for the Storytelling with Data community. And that is at community.storytellingwithdata.com. 
Awesome. And then the last, last question is where's the best place to get your books? I got mine on Amazon, but is that the best? Uh, is that the yeah, best? I think Amazon's probably easiest for getting most places and usually has the best price. So I point people there too. And they ship in like two days. So it's great. <laughs> so they spoiled me for sure. I can't order from anywhere else anymore. Thanks, Amazon. <laughs> so Cole, thank you so much for taking, you know, this full hour and chatting with the community. It's really helpful. You're getting great feedback here on, you know, great session, nice session. People have definitely learned and have gotten a new place to go, the safe space for practicing their data skills. So thank you for that. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. And thanks everyone for joining. This has been super fun. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Bye everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Dedicated On Air podcast. We really hope you'll come back for more episodes. And until then, stay dedicated.